Let's open our Bibles to uh, Ezekiel 26, as Gino said. We're making our way through the book of Ezekiel. What an amazing guy. I can't wait to meet Ezekiel. Of course, every time we teach a book, I can't wait to meet whoever wrote it. But Ezekiel's one of those guys, you know, I think he's still going to have a drama ministry in heaven. I, I really do. Guy is so dramatic. I love the guy. Uh, we're going to look at the, uh, God's judgment on the nation of Tyre tonight, T-Y-R-E, and so we're calling our study Overinflated Tyre. Uh, love those groaners, don't you? We're uh, looking at that in verses 1 through 21. Um, my personal enjoyment of Bible prophecy probably has its roots in the fact that God used prophecy to open my spiritual eyes to the truth about Jesus Christ. Uh, I'd grown up in a Roman Catholic tradition, uh, went, you know, to catechism and communion, uh, confession and communion and confirmation and all of that, but uh, I didn't really understand that uh, Jesus was alive. I mean, I talked about him being risen from the dead and those kinds of things, but it never really struck me that he was alive. Uh, but in February of 1979, uh, the film The Late Great Planet Earth was in movie theaters. Uh, just wasn't playing in churches. It was just in, out in the theater. Uh, it was based on Hal Lindsey's commentary on the book of the Revelation of the same name. I saw it and I was just amazed at the fact that God had pre-written history. It was only a couple of days after that that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Actually, the first thing I did, it was kind of silly and cute at the same time. Um, <clears throat> I was so stunned uh, that uh, I, I tried to prove that the book of Revelation wasn't in the Bible. And so I went to my mom and dad's house uh, because I knew we had a Bible there. It was in the linen closet under the sheets uh, in the original box in which it was bought. It was one of those giant Bibles, you know, that, you know, just the big family Bible with all the really creepy pictures of the apostles, you know, and all that. So. Uh, I, I went and I looked in there. We just stopped in. We oh, it's a little pop in. Oh, hi, mom and dad. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, nothing. You know, I had Pam distract them while I found the Bible, rummaged for it, and stuff. I didn't want them to see what I was doing. And at first, I was pretty encouraged because I went to the back of the Bible and there was no Book of Revelation, just maps. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever even looked at a Bible in my whole life. I was in my twenties, and um, and I thought, wow. And then I thought, no. You know, maybe, maybe if a few pages, and sure enough, there it was, the revelation of Jesus Christ and a creepy picture of John on Patmos to boot, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um, <clears throat> predictive prophecy is a great proof. It's a great apologetic of the Bible's inspiration by God. It's a great tool to introduce folks to Jesus Christ, especially in the days in which we are living as we see so many of the prophecies of the Bible either being fulfilled or heading towards fulfillment. What are some of those things? Well, if you attend Sunday mornings or regularly visit our website, you know them because we've been doing prophecy updates every Sunday for the last 175 weeks. Uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. The establishment of Israel as a nation again in her ancient land is a fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies. Even Christians didn't believe that was going to happen, uh, even though Bi the Bible said it was. They spiritualized it and allegorized it, uh, and then there is Israel. The fact that Jerusalem is a burden to all the nations of the world is a direct fulfillment 
of centuries-old prophecies. The prophet Daniel predicted an exponential explosion of knowledge in the last days. Ours is the generation that is seeing knowledge increase exponentially, more than they can even uh, figure. The technology to unite the world in a single system of commerce involving some sort of personal identifier predicted over 2,000 years ago is now possible. It's never been possible before, but it is now. And a very specific coalition of nations listed by name coming against Israel in the last days was predicted 2,500 years ago by Ezekiel. Those nations are lining up just as you'd expect. I'll give you a preview either of this Sunday or the following Sunday. We're going to take a look at the nation of Turkey, which is one of the nations listed or the areas listed by Ezekiel. Turkey is a NATO ally trying to get into the European Union, and so people say, well, that's never going to happen. Almost overnight, Turkey has become an enemy of Israel and is aligning itself with uh, Iran and Russia, just as you'd expect from the Bible. Now, our passage in Ezekiel, it's a great example of predictive prophecy coming true in actual human history. I want to look at it from that perspective as a proof of the Bible's inspiration. The next three chapters, chapters 26, 27, and 28, deal with the nation of Tyre. We would maybe call it a city-state. Sorry I keep scratching my nose, but man, whose allergies are bothering them? Raise your hand. And I'm ready to stick a match up my nose right now. I'm telling you, man. That's all they do. They cauterize your nose with heat, right? Just get one of those punks that they use at, at you know, and just... I remember when we had the kid, I, I was too afraid. The kids, you know, they had nosebleeds all the time. So, oh, they'll cauterize your nose. Okay, we went in there. He's like lighting this thing. It was like alchemy or something, you know, and stuff. And, ah! Anyway, city-state of Tyre, located on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, one of the most ancient and prosperous cities in history. From Herodotus, the father of modern history, it can be argued that the city goes back at least to 2700 B.C. The city of Tyre had a rather interesting geography. About a half mile off the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea stood a small rocky island on which the original city of Tyre was most likely founded. Sometime after the founding of the island city, the mainland city of Tyre was built. Due to its advantage geographically and good ports, Tyre became one of the wealthiest trading cities in history. During the reign of King David and then his son Solomon around the time of 1000 BC, Hiram, king of Tyre, played a major role in the acquisition of building materials for important structures such as the king's houses and the first temple. In numerous biblical passages, the text states that Hiram sent cedar trees, carpenters, masons, and builders to Israel because of the Tyrians' renowned skill in timber cutting. In addition, the Tyrians were equally well known for the remarkable ability to navigate the seas. Second Chronicles documents that Hiram sent ships and servants who knew the sea to work with Solomon's men in acquiring gold from foreign lands. During the time of Ezekiel, Tyre was well established and renowned for its building, manufacturing, and trade. Ezekiel will say of Tyre in chapter 27, your builders have perfected your beauty. And then he will proceed to list several different kinds of wood and imported materials used by the Tyrians. The prophet stated in chapter 27, verse 33, When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. And I want to cruise through chapter 26, looking at its major details to show its place in predictive prophecy. 
And so we begin in verses 1 and 2 where God delivered his accusation against Tyre. He says in verse 1, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples, now she is turned over to me, I shall be filled, she is laid waste. And so Tyre is accused with seeking to benefit commercially and materially from the overflow of Jerusalem. It's not a perfect comparison, but it, the, the thought behind this, the mentality of it, is like people who try to prosper during times of disaster. Don't you love that? You know, there's an earthquake or a fire or some terrible disaster. You run down to the local store because, you, you know, you're trying to stock up on stuff, and, and all of a sudden a roll of toilet paper is $25, you know. And uh, I think there's laws against that, but, uh, you know, it, that's the attitude that Tyre had. It's like, hey, great, Jerusalem's going to fall so we can take her spoil. And because Jerusalem was on the trade route kind of a thing, then, you know, they would be eliminated as a trading partner and Tyre would be all the more commercially successful. Throughout the next three chapters, we're going to see how Tyre was materially prosperous, but spiritually impoverished. It's a very simple message, something we all know as Christians, something Jesus warned about, something Paul warned about in terms of riches and wealth and those kinds of things and how they, they tend to capture our attention, uh, how we in a sense think we can gain the whole world but oftentimes people lose their soul in the process uh, and so that is kind of the underlying theme and each of us can take this as a as a word to you know uh, to uh, meditate on in terms of just our contact with the world and what we're really trusting in and what we're looking towards and you know where we put our hope uh, especially in this really perverse economy in which we live I mean things are bad aren't they they're bad uh, they're not terrible. I mean, we're all here. We've got clothes on, and, you know, we all took showers, and well, most of us. And, uh, but things are bad, and, you know, they could get better. They could get worse. Uh, but our trust and our hope is not in the things of the world or the material prosperity of the world. Uh, they're in spiritual things. And, and Tyre is a good example of that because Tyre achieved all that the world had to offer in terms of a commercial center, but they... Uh, forgot God, they didn't turn to the Lord, and uh, they were another one of those cities, as we'll see in a minute, that thought, nobody can take us, we're in this great geography, there's no way that we can be overcome, and of course they were. Now, a general statement of her judgment follows in verses 3 through 6, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you, as the sea causes its waves to come up, and they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. It shall become plunder for the nations. Also her daughters, uh, her daughter villages which are in the field shall be slain by the sword. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. God really loves what we would call poetic justice. Trusting as they did in their secure position in the midst of the sea, God described her downfall over time as if each successive nation was like the relentless pounding of the waves against her. History supports this prediction. First Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, then the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids, then Rome all came against Tyre until she was completely ruined. Now it's this next section, verses 7 through 14, 
that are of interest with regard to predictive prophecy, specific predictive prophecy. So let's look at them. For thus says the Lord, verse 7, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, horsemen and an army with many people. He will slay with the sword your daughter villages in the fields. He will heap up a siege mound against you, build a wall against you, raise a defense against you. He will direct his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of all the abundance of his horses, their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen, the wagons and the chariots, when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hooves of his horses he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people by the sword, and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your riches and pillage your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. I'll put an end to the sound of your songs and to the sound of your harps. They'll be heard no more. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets, and you shall never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, says the Lord God. Now, some of your Bibles may have an alternate spelling for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it turns out that it is a Babylonian spelling of his name that's been verified by some archaeological finds. Uh, so uh, if it says Nebuchadnezzar or something like that, we're still talking about Nebuchadnezzar, who is one of the guys I wish had a shorter name uh, because he appears so often in Scripture and it's just really hard. Not so much to say it, it's kind of cool to say it, but to type it is really hard. Uh, and so... <laughs> Now, Ezekiel predicted at least six things. Number one, many nations would come against Tyre. Number two, the inhabitants of the villages and fields of Tyre would be slain. Number three, Nebuchadnezzar would build a siege mound against the city. Number four, the city would be broken down and the stones, timber, and soil would be thrown in the midst of the water. Number five, the city would become a place for spreading nets. And number six, the city would never be rebuilt. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came against Tyre within a few months of this dated prophecy. He did not, however, do the rest of the things Ezekiel listed. What's that all about? Well, Ezekiel began this prophecy by stating that many nations would come against Tyre. That's in verse 3. Then he proceeded to name Nebuchadnezzar and stated that he would be, do certain things, build a siege mound, slay with the sword, uh, and some of the other things in verses 7 through 11. Then in verse 12, the pronoun shifts from the singular he to the plural they. And if you were listening when I was reading, I was emphasizing that. It is in verse 12 and following that Ezekiel predicts that they will lay the stones and building material of Tyre in the midst of the waters. Now the shift in pronouns is significant since it shifts the subject from the action of Nebuchadnezzar to many nations. As I stated earlier, history does record that many nations did come against Tyre. But perhaps most stunning in this prophecy is the historical fulfillment of the words in verse 12, they will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. Enter Alexander the Great. Alexander wanted to make a personal sacrifice in the temple of Heracles on the island city of Tyre. Now, I don't need to tell you this, but you really didn't want Alexander and his forces inside your city. He said he wanted to come and make a sacrifice, but likely you were going to be the sacrifice. And so the Tyrians considered their island refuge virtually impregnable, 
And with war machines covering the walls and rapidly moving water acting as an effective barrier from land attack, they refused Alexander the Great. Upon hearing of their refusal, Alexander immediately set to work on a plan to besiege and conquer the city. Ingenious. He took upon himself the task of building a land bridge, or what we would call a causeway, from the mainland city of Tyre to the island city. To do it, he demolished the mainland city and he set many tens of thousands of men to work carrying the stones and the debris from that city into the ocean to build that land bridge. A historian describes the final siege of Tyre in these words, and I quote, Alexander was able to obtain ships from Sidon, Greek allies, and Cyprus to form a blockade around Tyre. When the causeway was within artillery range of Tyre, Alexander brought up stone throwers and light catapults reinforced by archers and slingers for a saturation barrage. Battle engineers constructed several naval battling ram battering rams which smashed through the walls of Tyre. Though courageous, the Tyrians were no match for Alexander's troops. Over 7,000 Tyrians died in the defense of their island. In contrast, only 400 Macedonians were killed. The seven-month siege from January to July 332 BC was over. The great city over which Hiram had once held sway was now utterly destroyed. Her king, Azimelech, and various other notables, including envoys from Carthage, had taken refuge in the temple of Melkart, and Alexander spared their lives. The remaining survivors, 30,000 in number, he sold into slavery. 2,000 men of military age were crucified. Then Alexander went up into the temple, ripped the golden cords from the image of the god, now to be renamed by decree, Apollo Philaxi Alexander, and made his long-delayed sacrifice. It was the most costly blood offering that god had ever received. You understand this is an exact fulfillment of what Ezekiel prophesied would happen hundreds of years earlier. God said to this impregnable city, they will take the timbers and water will cover them uh, and the city will fall. Now, skeptics remain skeptical. That's what they do. That's what they get paid for. However, and they point out that Tyre still exists as a city today. There is still a city of Tyre. They say, therefore, that Ezekiel's prophecy ultimately fails what we have called the test of a prophet. So if there's a city of Tyre and one of his predictions was that there is no Tyre, how do we justify that? Well, the facts are the bulk of the prophecy is about the mainland city, and it no longer exists, and in fact, it no longer can exist. One writer said, quote, the mainland city of Tyre was dismantled by Alexander the Great in his famous siege and disappeared totally with the change of the coastline brought about by the dike and an, uh, the alluvial deposits that changed Tyre into a peninsula. Another writer said, not content with crushing her, he took care that she never should revive for he founded Alexandria as a substitute and changed forever the track of the commerce of the world. And so in very point of fact, the city of Tyre that we're talking about does not exist anymore and cannot exist anymore. It can't really be rebuilt because its ancient site doesn't even exist. And so the facts line up perfectly with the words of verse 19. Let's read them in their context, beginning with verse 15. So they agree with verse 12, also with verse 19. Now, beginning in verse 15, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will the coastlands not shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded cry, when the slaughter is made in the midst of you? 
Then all the princes of the sea will come down from their thrones, lay aside their robes, take off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be astonished at you. And they will take up a, lament, a lamentation for you and say, How you have perished, O one inhabited by seafaring men, O renowned city, who was strong at sea, she and her inhabitants, who caused their terror to be on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands by the sea are troubled at your departure. Verse 19, For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a desolate city like cities that are not inhabited, when I bring the deep upon you and great waters cover you. That's an exact description of the mainland lost city of Tyre today. And so let's close out the chapter, verse 20 and 21. Then I will bring you down with those who descend into the pit to the people of old. I will make you dwell in the lowest part of the earth in places desolate from antiquity with those who go down to the pit so that you may never be inhabited and I shall establish glory in the land of the living. I will make you a terror and you shall be no more. Though you are sought for, you will never be found again, says the Lord God. Now pit is a reference to the grave and beyond that to what we would call uh, Hades. It's described by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke when he tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you read uh, Bible commentaries, uh, most solid Bible commentators no longer call it the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They point out that it doesn't have the features of a parable. Uh, it's not a story laid alongside something else. It's a, it's a, it's a story of a, of a guy named Lazarus. Uh, parables usually don't have people's names. They're not about real people, as it were. And so we believe that Jesus is telling a real story when he tells the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, you know that the rich man, like the city of Tyre, had everything he wanted in this life. And the, uh, Lazarus was this poor beggar who you would be content with the crumbs off the rich man's table that the dogs ate. They both died. Of course, Lazarus was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, it says. The rich man went to Hades. And we learn from this story that this is some kind of a compartment that exists in the spiritual dimension in the center of the earth, uh, where uh, one part, Hades, a place of torment, uh, where non-believers await a final judgment. Another compartment, another part of it, Abraham's bosom or paradise, a place of rest for the righteous, those who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ up until the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's a great chasm or gulf fixed between them. You can't build a bridge. You can't jump it. There's no motorcycles. There's, you know, you, no evil can evil kind of stuff is going on. There, you just can't get from one side to the other. But the two sides can see each other. And those that are suffering in the side of torment, they can see... Uh, that it's, it's pretty nice over in the side of paradise, but it's too late because after you die, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes judgment. Uh, and so here we're uh, being told that the inhabitants of Tyre, unfortunately for them, uh, after the destruction of their city and their death by terrible you know, things at the hands of the Alexand Alexander's troops, uh, their eternal souls are confined to the pit, to Hades. Now, non-believers who die, since we're talking about this and it's always interesting to people, non-believers who die today still go to Hades. They don't go to hell. Hell is what we would call the lake of fire uh, that's described in the book of the Revelation. So uh, it too exists, but non-believers go to Hades. They still go to this waiting place. 
What happens to believers when they die? Well, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to what? Be present with the Lord. So when Jesus died, he descended into this place. Remember, he told the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me where? In paradise. He didn't say heaven. He said, you'll be with me in paradise. So he descended into paradise. You read about it in uh, Ephesians. And uh, he revealed himself to all the souls that were, uh, who had believed God, and he had accounted it to them to their righteousness. And then he led all of those souls, it says he led captivity captive, to heaven. And now that part is empty. It's not for rent. It's not for sale. It's just empty. Uh, no one goes there. Uh, and so when a believer dies, they're absent from their body and they're present in heaven with the Lord. Non-believers die. They go to Hades to await final punishment, which happens towards the end of the book of the Revelation in about chapter 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment, where all of the non-believing uh, individuals from all of time are raised from the dead all at once in one general final resurrection of the damned uh, and their names are searched for in the Lamb's Book of Life but because they never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior all that is left is the Book of Works and they may have fantastic works but their works will always fall short of what is necessary for righteousness and they are cast alive uh, for eternity into the lake of fire and that uh, beloved that is hell and so this is a very stunning judgment uh, on the inhabitants of Tyre uh, and uh, we know from history that Tyre fell exactly as God said it I mean it'd be one thing to be Nostradamus you know you follow these things about Nostradamus somewhere in Nostradamus I'm sure that there's a T and a Y and an R together somewhere and somebody's gonna say Nostradamus predicted the fall of Tyre you know but Ezekiel, under the inspiration of God, he really predicted the fall hundreds of years before it happened in exact detail that exists even today. Uh, now, the only way skeptics who still want to remain skeptical, skeptical and skeptical, the only way they get around this is they say, well, Ezekiel must have written after all that happened. I love this. This is the common complaint that, that, uh, or argument that you find and here's the argument. Daniel said this, Ezekiel said that, because they predicted it before it happened, and we know they couldn't have done that, therefore they wrote it afterwards, and it's a lie. And so when Jesus comes along and he talks about Daniel the prophet, then that makes Jesus a liar. And some of these skeptics will say, well, yeah, Jesus didn't know what we know today. He didn't have the higher criticism. He didn't realize that Daniel was, he was a good Jewish boy, and so he thought Daniel was really written by Daniel before all those things happened, and Ezekiel too. That's the argument. Truth is, Ezekiel wrote these things hundreds of years before they happened in perfect predictive detail. God knew exactly what would occur centuries in the future, and he still does, and he's told us and we can see the signs. I opened with some of the things that we see that absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt prove that we're living in the last days or something so much like the last days it's mind-blowing. I mean do you realize I know we go about our daily business and we can't always be overwhelmed by these things but ours is the generation that is seeing so much of what could only have been thought of as fantasy 
even a few decades ago, even 10 years ago. There's so many things that, that could be fulfilled today that could never be fulfilled before. Uh, another one of my favorites is the fact that in the book of the Revelation, uh, at the midway, uh, midpoint, three and a half years into it, the Antichrist rises to power and God gives him permission to kill his two witnesses who we think maybe are Moses and Elijah come back. These guys have been on the earth for three and a half years ministering. People have tried to kill them. They're invincible. They can't be killed. They call fire down out of heaven. I mean, they're, they're powerful guys preaching the gospel to the whole world. Antichrist rises to power. God gives him permission to kill Moses and Elijah or the two witnesses, whoever they are. And they lie in state in Jerusalem and the Bible says the entire world watches them and rejoices. They throw a big party while these guys are for their, their death. But the whole world is watching and the whole world is watching when three and a half days after they're, dead, they're killed, they rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. The whole world is watching. Do you know it's really not been that long that the whole world can watch a live event? It's really very recent. As recently as the 60s, you were staying up in the middle of the night to watch rebroadcasts on some Canadian satellite of the Olympics. You know? But now, literally, at, on your telephone, on your cell phone, you can watch live events as they unfold. We're the only people in the whole history of the world that that prediction could have actually come true, and it could come true tomorrow. Uh, and so uh, I don't know what else we need to say about the fact that uh, we're living in the last days. Now, are we looking for the coming of Jesus? Are we concerned about the Antichrist? No, because our Lord promised us that he would come for us imminently before the Great Tribulation. And so we're looking for the resurrection and the rapture of the church, and that could happen at any moment. But Bible prophecy, well, it's a big thing. It's exciting. People are interested in prophecy right now. Between now and 2012, there's peak interest in prophecy because everybody has a sneaking suspicion that the world is going to end in 2012. It's not. The Bible doesn't predict the end of the world. It's the, it's the finishing out of God's redemptive plan of history so that he can recreate the world and we can go on into what he planned originally for the human race. But you can't knock 2012 out of the way. Every television pro, every night there's a new program on the Mayan prophecies or Nostradamus's prophecy or somebody else's prophecy. They're finding all kinds of new prophecies about 2012. People are maybe not overtly worried about it because we cried wolf in Y2K, but people are interested. And, and, and you know, any one of the things that I mentioned are mind-blowing. And they only take a few seconds to tell the person, hey, did you know that ours is the only generation that could uh, be, you know, see the fulfillment of revelation in the sense of watching these things happen spontaneously? No, I never really thought about that. Yeah, maybe you should. Because Jesus is coming. Do you know the Lord? What do you know about the Lord Jesus Christ? What a great question that is. I hope everybody here is saved and ready to go. Uh, you know, I didn't even... Uh, saved wasn't even my, in my vocabulary. I don't know why. I was, a, I was an amoral sinner. I didn't tell you this. I've told you this before. If you've been around for a while, you know the, the real story or the, 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 the back story. The reason I went to see the late great planet Earth and not another movie is because my wife didn't want to go see it. And, and our marriage was, it was hopeless. We'd been married two and a half years, 
And no one hated each other more than my wife and I. I'm serious. I'm not joking. I'm smiling about it because of what God has done. But we hated each other. Uh, and I don't know what kept us together uh, other than it seemed more difficult to file for divorce in 1979 than it is today. Uh, and nobody wanted to have the onus of suspicion on them. And I mean, we hated each other. And so we, we lived in the mountains. It was February. And, you know, when you lived up in the mountains, 6,000 feet, you just didn't cruise down to San Bernardino all the time. It was like, you know, in the winter. And so we thought, oh, we don't really want to go home because once we go home, then all we have is each other. Uh, and, you know, and we hate each other. And so let's go see a movie and kill some time. And so we, tra you know, we're driving around. Couldn't just check on your cell phone, you know, so we had to drive around. We got to this one theater. I forget the other movies that were playing, but they were lame. And I said, Lake Ray Planet Earth, what's that? And she goes, no, we're not seeing that. No. What? Whoa, what's this? Well, Pam had grown up in a Baptist church. She'd been saved. She was a backslidden Christian. I didn't know that. She's totally bad. I didn't know what a Christian was, you know, but, and I certainly, she was a totally backslidden Christian girl. And, uh, and so, no, we're not going to go see that. Yeah, we are. Yeah. She goes, no, that's about the Bible. I said, so what? Who cares? You know, and, and I drug her in there. And then I started to get worried because nobody was in there. I mean, it was, we were the only two people. Of course, that happens here in Lemoore all the time, you know. But when you live in a big city, you know, I mean, we were literally the only people in there. And I, I, even I thought, let's get out of here. And then two older women came in. And I thought, okay, it's all right. And then... And not in a weird way because, you know, I don't want you to take this, but they were holding hands. And I thought, okay, you know, women do that. And then they sat down not too far from us, and then I heard this noise, and I, they were singing. They were singing under their breath. It turns out it was a praise song, but I didn't know that. And I thought, we do have to get out of here. <laughs> so this is weird, you know. But then the lights went down and the movie started, and I was mesmerized. It's cheesy by today's standards. And I don't even think he got half of it right. But, uh, you know, it was all he did was kind of, you know, he said, here's what's happening in the news, and here's what the Bible says. And it was like, really? Wow, why didn't anybody ever tell me this before? That God has something to do with human history. The last thing I had heard about God when I started at the University of California, Riverside, was that Christianity had failed and God was a non-essential. And so let's figure out you know, how to get along without God since the world is in the toilet. And it's, if it is, it's his fault. And so, you know, who needs God? And there I was, I mean, it was just mind-blowing. Uh, and so, uh, now I hope you're saved tonight. If you're not, uh, you need to give your life to the Lord. Uh, it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we're saved. Not of any works. Not by religion, but by relationship. Amen? Amen. Amen. To him be the glory. All right, Gino's